Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of Bible Stories for Snarky People. I'm Josh. And I'm Sarah. And you may notice that this 18th episode of our second season has another parental advisory warning on it. Yes, I'd hope to avoid using that again, but, you know, the whole Bible might could use a parental advisory sticker on the cover. There's a lot of sex and violence in here. And we want to paint a complete picture of the sorts of things addressed in the Bible. Sometimes that includes really unpleasant stuff. So we're going to do our best to tackle this chapter honestly. Yeah, and there's another good reason not to overlook this chapter. A lot of people grow up hearing pleasant-sounding Bible stories, or maybe the ones that can be reduced to simple morality tales. This gives them the impression that if it's in the Bible, then it's a clear-cut lesson for us to learn, and God approves of whatever happened. Then they come across a chapter like this one and say, well, if God approves of this crap, I want nothing to do with it. But the problem isn't the Bible. It's people's assumptions about what it means when something is in the Bible. And this chapter is the perfect object lesson for that sort of thing. So be prepared for some questionable ethics. Didn't we recently talk about having to wrestle with the Bible? (laughs) Oh, we did, didn't we? (laughs) The Book of Genesis, chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and settled near a certain Adulamite whose name was Hirah. Oh, okay, wait. Judah? I thought our main character was Joseph. Well, last we heard, Joseph got shipped off to Egypt. Apparently, we're taking a detour in this chapter to find out what happens with his older half-brother. I suppose Judah is a lot older. He probably has lots of other life stuff going on. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He married her and went into her. Congrats on the wedding! She conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. The nurse said, I have the paperwork here. What do you want to name your son? Ur. All right, you got it. Again, she conceived and bore a son whom she named Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she named him Shelah. She was in Chezib when she bore him. Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. Oh, the kids are already growing up? A long time has passed in this detour. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Ah! Oh no! What did he do? Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Raise up offspring for your brother. Is this like what happened in the book of Ruth? Where the closest living male relative has to take responsibility for the woman now? Maybe kind of, sorta. But in that case, no relative was all that close. Here, we're talking about an actual brother-in-law. And the practice in ancient Israel, outlined in the Law of Moses much later than this story, was called leveret marriage. It was indeed the duty of a man to take his deceased brother's wife for himself and get her pregnant. In this way, he'd be carrying on the family legacy. And it would be understood that her child would actually be the child of the dead man. Not literally, but metaphorically. Yes, and legally. And of course, the woman isn't allowed to take care of herself. There are a lot of things in this chapter that date from a time when the assumptions were very different from ours. So now Tamar is Onan's wife. 
But since Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, he spilled his semen on the ground whenever he went into his brother's wife so that he would not give offspring to his brother. Congratulations, season two, episode 18. You just officially earned that parental advisory warning. Yeah. Basically, this means he didn't complete the sexual act, so no baby can be made. Yes, the Latin term still used today is coitus interruptus. And kids, you get to learn that here instead of sex ed class in school. Well, you probably wouldn't learn it anyway. What he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Weird thing for God to get mad about. People can just Choose not to have babies if they don't want to. Again, different assumptions about the role of women and also the men in their lives. And different assumptions of how God might act in the world in response to people's actions. So now does Tamar get passed off to Judah's third son? Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. Oh, he's still just a kid. For he feared that he too would die, like his brothers. Or maybe Sheila being a kid is Judah's way of dragging his feet. He's afraid that Tamar is cursed and that he'll lose all three of his boys to her. Not too far out of the question. Compare this story to a story in the book of Tobit about a young woman named Sarah whose husbands keep mysteriously dying on their wedding night. Wait, that's an actual story? Regardless, by delaying like this, Judah is technically going against the rules. But you said Leverite marriage is from the laws of Moses. Moses won't be born for centuries yet. And Israel isn't a kingdom yet, just one dude with a bunch of kids. True. It's always important when reading the Bible to know where you are in the narrative. That way you can see when the author is carrying ideas back in time and placing them into a more ancient story. Is it really that different from modern reimaginings of old myths? Rick Riordan gives us Greek gods with cell phones. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. Her own father, not Judah. She went back to where she grew up to live as a widow. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. It's sad that Judah's wife dies without even being given a name. She's just the daughter of Shua. But this also makes it clear that a lot of time has passed, and presumably Tamar is still waiting for Sheila to take her. When Judah's time of mourning was over, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hirah the Adulamite. The Bible doesn't talk enough about people just being friends and taking a guy's weekend away. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, Who told her? Was it the same guy who told Joseph to go to Goshen in the last episode? She put off her widow's garments, put on a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat down at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. She's got some sort of plot cooking. She saw that Shelah was grown up, yet she had not been given to him in marriage. Oh, Judah really is delaying his duty to the law. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a prostitute, for she had covered her face. A prostitute, known commonly these days as a sex worker, is a person who offers sex in exchange for money. He went over to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. 
Incest alert. Incest alert. Incest alert. Incest alert. Great! She's gonna have sex with the dad of the man she's pledged to marry. Fun! She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a kid from the flock. Kid like baby goat, not like his now grown son. And she said, Only if you give me a pledge until you send it. A pledge? Like the Pledge of Allegiance? More like collateral. How does Tamar know that he'll keep his word and have that goat sent to her? She needs something right now that will count as payment. Ah, in case he doesn't follow through. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and the staff that is in your hand. Oh, uh, I remember what a signet is. It's that uh, unique stamp people use to sign documents. In the book of Esther, the king's signet ring played an important role in the plot. Yeah, and the cord is probably what the signet is hanging on around his neck. As for the staff, maybe he just really likes his walking stick. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Incest alert. Incest alert. Incest alert. Incest alert. Incest alert. Then she got up and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. No more disguise. Back to the grind as a widow in mourning. When Judah sent the kid by his friend the Adulamite to recover the pledge from the woman, he could not find her. He asked the townspeople, Where is the temple prostitute who was at Anayim by the wayside? But they said, No prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Moreover, the townspeople said, No prostitute has been here. Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, otherwise we will be laughed at. You see, I sent this kid, and you could not find her. So Judah gets to keep his goat, but he is incapable of signing documents, and he lost his good walking stick. It's like when your car gets stolen and you lose your keys in your wallet. It's such a pain to cancel all those credit cards and get new ones issued. Worse, what if someone goes around signing things as him? Wait, that's probably what you were talking about, wasn't it? I guess identity theft existed in the ancient world, too. About three months later, Judah was told, There goes that nameless guy again, telling people things. Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the whore. Moreover, she is pregnant as a result of whoredom. Whore is a very nasty name for prostitutes that is meant to make them feel bad. Not quite a swear word, but... Don't say it in front of your grandma. This tells us that her becoming a sex worker is seen as a very shameful thing for her family. But I noticed that Judah was really glad to come across a sex worker on his guy's weekend away. Did he wonder whether someone else was upset with her about her self-employment? There are some jobs that people want somebody to do, but they hate the people who actually do it. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Oh, gosh. I got it was shameful, but I didn't realize it was quite that bad. Yeah, and again, I notice he wasn't calling for the sex worker in Timnah to be punished when he was the one paying for her services. But the idea of his daughter-in-law being a sex worker is simply not okay. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. It was the owner of these who made me pregnant. And she said, take note, please, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. 
And obviously, everyone will know who it was when Judah has to reclaim his signet. Then Judah acknowledged them and said, She is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not lie with her again. Whoa, a man in the Bible got called up short by a woman in public and admitted he was wrong? He didn't follow through to marry Tamar to his third son, and now he has to face humiliation. When the time of her delivery came, there were twins in her womb. Judah's children. While she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and bound on his hand a crimson thread, saying, This one came out first. We have to remember which one is the firstborn for the sake of honoring those pesky inheritance laws. But just then he drew back his hand, and out came his brother. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. What does that mean? Breach? Yeah, don't get confused here. In English, the word breach does refer to a baby born feet first instead of head first, but that's not what this word means. Another definition of breach is to cross a line. Like, for instance, crossing out of the womb into the breathing world. So she's just remarking with surprise at what a noteworthy birth event this is. Therefore, he was named Perez. Does Perez mean breach? Yep. Afterwards, his brother came out with the crimson thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. Does that mean crimson thread? Why, yes, it does. Uh, No, it actually means brightness, and presumably the crimson thread was eye-catching. So, that's the end of the chapter. Yep. Birth is a rather cheerful end to an otherwise slightly horrible story. Yeah, that it is. But I've noticed something about the Bible in general, or at least this part of it. There's not a lot of emotion in it. It just says, this happened, and then this happened. It doesn't really tell us how we're supposed to feel about it. Does that bother you? Well, I don't need it to hold my hand at every step. But, well, a lot of people think the purpose of the Bible is to help people learn right from wrong. Yeah, as if you couldn't do that without the Bible's help. Right. I don't need the Bible to literally say, this happened and that was good, and this happened and that was bad. But the lack of emotion can be a little off-putting. It's like, why are you telling me all these stories, many of which are just horrible, without giving some indication of the reason for telling them or what you think about them? Oh, I see. It's like the Bible is saying, here's a bunch of stuff that happened. Make of it what you will. And not just... Here's a bunch of stuff that happened, but more like, here are the ancient, sacred stories of our people, the whole foundation of our belief in God. And then stories like Tamar come along, and I wonder, do we really believe this about God? That God just saps people who disappoint him, and then doesn't stop other terrible things from happening? It's been observed that God is the main character of the Bible, but God isn't in every part of it. A lot of it is about the people of Israel trying to establish their identity as God's chosen people and wondering together about what the true nature of God is. And sometimes that happens in the storytelling in extremely subtle ways. Uh, Like, well, this happened, when what they really mean is, maybe God's like this. Or they might be saying, our people have these values and not those of the people next door. But some of the values the people of Israel do show 
aren't the greatest. Right, because people are only human. And the Bible was written by people, even if it is a book about God. Even if we people of faith believe the books of the Bible are inspired by God, or even that God is speaking to us through them. Can that really be equally true in every word? I don't think it has to be. But we've talked before about the wrestling we need to do with the Bible, and that the rewards come through the wrestling match. Yes, exactly. So... On that topic, yes, it's been bugging me that four chapters ago, we just said, we don't talk about Dinah, and moved on. Hmm. Having heard the story of Tamar, I think we need to go back and talk about Dinah. Okay, fair enough. So, I went and read the whole Dinah chapter myself. That's chapter 34. And I've prepared my own summary from her point of view, to try and give her a little bit of her voice back. So... Here's, roughly, what happened to Dinah. One typical day, Dinah's hanging out with all her friends. Sure, her family's kind of viewed as those weird foreigners with their own strange customs by most of those in the region, but that's mostly the men's problem. They're the ones dictating all those customs, after all. These women have more in common than they have differences. Namely, having to do everything themselves while constantly being bossed around and treated like property. So, Dinah's having a nice picnic with everyone, listening to one of the others vent about her stupid husband, being very glad that her father Jacob hasn't forced her to marry yet. But then she gets separated from the group for a moment. Maybe she has to go use the bathroom. And who does she get spotted by but Shechem, the local prince. For some reason, he has the same name as the city they're in, but that's not the point. The point is he's a powerful young man and a horrible person. He sees Dinah, and he wants her badly. And instead of managing his emotions like a normal person and talking to her, or asking for her hand in marriage, he just runs up and assaults her. He forces her to have sex with him against her will. And I can't even imagine how horrible that must feel. Dinah could scream, and the other girls would likely hear her and come to try to help, but what could they do? Women don't have any rights in this time and place, and this dude is literally the prince. Who knows what he would do to them for interfering? Dinah can't do anything except wait for it to be over and flee to the safety of her home as quickly as possible. She doesn't tell anyone her shameful secret. Sex before marriage, or even betrothal, is very much not allowed, and she doesn't want to get in trouble, even though it really wasn't her fault. Her father, Jacob, knows, though. She can see it in the way he looks at her when she hides in the shadows or flinches at the sight of strange men over the next few days. She doesn't know who told him, but she does understand why he hasn't acted. He is simply one man, as rich as he might be, a single foreigner who the local people have misgivings about anyways, up against the literal prince of this land. 
He doesn't even have the aid of Dinah's many brothers, as they are currently over a day's travel away with the flocks. But then, coincidentally just as her brothers are finally arriving back home, Prince Shechem and his father King Hamor arrive to meet with Jacob about the issue. Dinah shudders at the sight of her assaulter, even from within the darkness of the tent, even more so as she sees him looking around with a sickeningly forlorn and love-struck expression, searching for her. Her brothers quickly catch on to the situation, and begin shouting in outrage and anger about what Shechem did, making Dinah feel the tiniest bit better as they stand up for her, though being referred to as defiled stings a bit. Yeah, her experience was awful, but it's not like she's ruined forever now. Anyways, Jacob silences his sons with a look, clearly telling them not to make the king angry, and tells Hamor and Shechem to say their piece. Dinah hates the way Shechem talks about her, as if she is a pretty trinket that he simply must have for his own, just because his heart decided to love her. Hamor is just as bad, defending his son's actions in the name of the purity of love and making up excuses about merging the two families into one and making everyone all the stronger. Her brothers protest, but then Simeon pulls them all into that group huddle thing they always do. Dinah had always wondered what it would be like to be part of those discussions. And when they pull away again, Dinah doesn't like the expressions they're wearing. To her horror, they start negotiating with Hamor and Shechem, saying they'll let him have her just as long as all the people of the city get circumcised. Circumcised? That weird religious surgery great-grandfather Abraham started? Dinah's never really given it a second thought. She doesn't have a penis, so it isn't her business. What does that have to do with her? Dread fills her as Hamor and Shechem agree and depart to get that all sorted out. She confronts her brothers, demands they tell her what they think they're doing, but they only look far too pleased with their own intelligence and tell her not to worry that they'll defend her honor. Honor? Honor is nothing compared to Dinah's physical safety. Jacob doesn't seem to know what's happening either, and is rather annoyed he was left out of the discussion, but he trusts his sons a lot more than his daughter. Two days later, Shechem comes back, wincing in pain but grinning gleefully to claim his prize. Dinah says nothing as she is led away, only glaring at her family in betrayal. Her father looks slightly guilty, but her brothers don't even notice, giving her cheerful see you soons and exaggerated winks. What exactly are they playing at? Luckily, that night Shechem's private parts are still in too much pain for him to try and have sex with her again, so she holds up in her sparse room and sobs, praying to God that he might somehow save her from this. At least some of the servants seem somewhat sympathetic. Sounds like Shechem is rather known for his lack of self-restraint and incomprehension of the word no. The next day, she hears the screams. She briefly wonders if God has answered her prayers with fire and brimstone, like what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, 
Although, if that's the case, she might end up dead, too. Though that could be better than the chance of Shechem surviving. But no, her two full brothers burst through the door holding bloody swords and boast about their great plan. You see, the men of the city are still incapacitated with pain from their circumcisions, and thus fall easily, even with their far larger numbers compared to the handful of brothers. See? We had it totally under control! As Simeon and Levi lead her from Shechem's fancy house, she sees they haven't limited their violence to the rulers who took her, but are slaughtering the men of the whole city. Not only that, but they are looting it as well, taking armfuls of crops and driving herds of animals away to their own lands. She sees a small child, lost and confused and scared. She sees one of her brothers chasing one of the women of the city, whom she met and chatted with not ten days before, the look on her brother's face terrifyingly close to the fragments of what she remembers of her first encounter with Shechem. She looks at the ground for the remainder of the trip. When they arrive home, she perks up at the sound of her father berating her brothers, but the relief doesn't last long. He speaks not with horror at what they have done, but with tired exasperation, saying only, You're going to turn the whole country against us, as if we don't have enough hardship already. What? Should our sister be treated like a whore? They retort. Dinah wants to point out that getting sexually assaulted against her will is kind of the opposite of a prostitute volunteering sex, but she knows it's no use and retires to her tent alone. She knows she doesn't get any voice at all in her own awful story. Wow, Sarah, you've been wrestling with the Bible. I do love a good writing prompt. (laughs) So, I do want to ask, what was it about Tamar's story that convinced you we couldn't just say, we don't talk about Dinah? Well, they have similar themes, but are also very different. Both involve women in unfortunate scenarios about how their sexual relationships dictate their lives. True. And both stories, of course, assume an understanding of the role of women that we definitely don't share today. How are they different, then? Tamar takes everything into her own hands and proves a point forces Judah to make things right with her. Dinah gets no voice at all. Her justice is carried out by her brothers on her behalf. And is it really justice for Dinah? Or is it just a perception of justice that's only acceptable to the men in Dinah's family? These sorts of stories are really tricky to talk about and grapple with. Maybe that's why people are still reading these stories after so many centuries. They're not all tied up in a bow. You can't read them once and say, well, I'm done now. People of faith read the scriptures over and over again because there's always another layer of meaning to hold up against our own lives. I'm not sure what more we can say about these stories. Not at this point. Let's let our listeners sit with Dinah's story and Tamar's story for a while. 
And let's remember back to last episode, we left main character Joseph in Egypt. Yes. And we do need to get back to him. Right. And we will do that next time. On Bible Stories for Snarky People. Bye! Bye.